0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda.
1: And this is Prashant
0: Warren from Washington, D.C. Hey, Prashant. Good to be back with you. Good to be with you. Terrific. Uh, so we're going to be missing you for a few weeks because you'll be traveling. So unfortunately for listeners, this is going to be our last podcast with Prashant for uh, a little bit. Um, but <laughs> to, to send, uh, send Prashant off uh, and you'll be going to Asia, right?
1: Yeah, that's right, India and China. All right.
0: Well, I guess we'll be talking about both those topics, and specifically we'll be talking about India-China relations. We'll do that in the second half of this episode. Uh, But first, um, you know, I've actually been seeing a lot of um, podcast listeners talking about this, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, There's been a bit of a tiff going on between the National Basketball Association, the NBA, something that I'm pretty sure we've never talked about on the Asia Geopolitics podcast before, Mm -hmm. and um, China. And the Chinese government, the Chinese people, uh, there's a bit of a tiff. Uh, You know, it originates with a tweet, I guess, last Friday by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And I'll apologize to listeners. I'm not really a basketball head or anything like that. So I apologize if I get things wrong in terms of the NBA specifically. Uh, But but broadly, the issue is, and this really relates to something that I think we can zoom out and talk about more generally. Um, The issue is, so the the general manager of the Houston Rockets, uh, Daryl Murray sent a tweet saying something pretty innocuous if you said it in the United States, right? He said, "Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And he didn't even say it. I think he tweeted an image um, mm-hmm. simply that someone had created just to show his support for the protesters uh, in Hong Kong fighting for democratic rights. And this sort of kicked up a hornet's nest. Uh, and since then, um, the NBA has basically been sort of taken to the cleaners in China. Uh, the Houston Rockets uh, have been denounced by the Chinese consulate in Houston, um moray himself has been denounced by the owner of his team the nba has had a very difficult relationship sort of managing this the chinese basketball association announced that it was suspending all cooperation with the houston Rockets. so clearly the issue here is that a private american citizen on u.s soil expresses a view um, that is then punished by china that ends up exacting costs on his organization. Um, So that's not the first time that's happened, right? This is a familiar story. And actually, in doing some research for this podcast, I put together a list of kind of broader issues that have happened that we haven't actually talked about before. Um, And what's interesting about the NBA, Prashant, and I guess the reason why we're even doing this podcast is the way in which it seems to be resonating with the average American um, compared to some of these previous episodes. And it's not just the NBA. I mean, right after this happened, uh, the American um, video game company, Blizzard, actually um ended up i guess uh punishing a hong kong based player for expressing support for the protesters after that player won a tournament uh in a popular game called hearthstone and blizzard actually ended up seizing that player's winnings banning them from competitive play for 12 years uh, uh 12 months and also banning um banning the um the Game casters that were um, sort of casting the event that this was part of so that again, I think has caused a lot of outrage at least on the internet right now if you go to any of the popular sites like reddit or something you'll see a lot of kind of people very upset about this making fun of you know xi jinping saying he looks like winnie the pooh because as we all know uh, gamers <laughs> are very uh, rational about how they manage their anger about these issues online uh, but again you don't know, I mean uh, so like a quick list of examples um so you know there was that infamous episode with the hotel chain marriott where they ended up firing an employee after um, that employee used the corporate twitter account to simply like a tweet that was talking about Taiwan uh, or uh, Taiwanese sovereignty. Um, And uh, so after the NBA episode, also Nike has removed all Houston Rockets products from their China web store. Um, There's obviously a long history of Apple's strange relationship with China. It's one of the most important Mm -hmm. markets for the country, so they've sought to preserve their access there. The You know, um, American Airlines, Delta, United, all of the three major U.S. air carriers um, deleted mentions of Taiwan from their routing maps um, after, after China complained about that um what else do we have we have uh you know so, so numerous examples of the taiwan thing right uh pretty much mm-hmm. any major company that lists taiwan implying that it might be a country or a listing republic of china and people's republic of china is sort of taken to the cleaners basically they're treated like governments that have to adhere to the one china principle um so all of this raises a very interesting question which is uh china is obviously big and powerful and a major market for many of these companies and um, many multinationals value access to the Chinese market, but at the same time, having that access gives the Chinese Communist Party incredible leverage. Uh, given the model of the Chinese economy, to simply shut out companies that don't say the right things or say the wrong things, as it were, about about issues that China cares about, about Chinese core interests. Um, th- there was a screenshot going around on Twitter too about ESPN Sports Center broadcasting a map of china including um not the 9-9 uh 9-line in the south china sea but the 10-line uh, a little bit more uh, a little bit more obscure but uh, but nevertheless right so so this is kind of the broader topic i wanted to bring up today uh so how do we how do we even begin to think about this issue i mean um congress has sort of taken a note after this nba thing there is a bipartisan letter and i really mean bipartisan because you have everybody from uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to Tom Cotton, um, probably as far left as and as, as far right you could go between the two between the two houses, uh, chiming in saying that the NBA basically needs to show some spine and stand up to China. But how do you incentivize that when these companies have so much on the line?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean that's the big big question. I mean, you know, as you said, I mean, I think one of the reasons why this controversy has gotten so much traction is the fact that it hits on so many different uh, points of view about, you know, not just uh, the sports conversation, but also us China relations more generally. Right. So as you correctly noted, I mean, we have this sort of broader debate about, we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, intensifying competition between the United States and China. And the big question about that has been not just what this means for governments, but also what does it mean for companies and what does it mean for individuals who are you know speaking their views and, you know, issues of freedom of expression, self-censorship, that's one avenue that I think has gotten a lot of hearing in this controversy. I think the other big one has been, um, you know, what, what is the role of politics in sports, right? I, I think a lo- in a lot of this uh, sort of this controversy, you've seen uh, NBA players and you've seen, uh, you know, a number of articles that have surfaced in response sort of, you know, making this argument should should we uh, sort of be talking about this Hong Kong conversation uh, relative to what sports uh, is is sort of talking about and basketball games? Or is this completely removed from that conversation? And I think there's an ongoing debate about that as well. And one of the interesting things has been, you know, you've had individual NBA players, you've had sporting agents that, are, that have had to navigate uh, this conversation. They've been asked, you know, bluntly in press conferences, you know, what do you think about the situation in Hong Kong? And some of the players have elected, I think, very strategically to say, oh, no, we, we, you know, we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about sports. But I think for for some others, um, you know, it's very clear that there is no real division between business and sports and freedom of expression. Right. You have on the one hand, the United States and, and companies and associations like the NBA that are trying to promote sports in a big market like China. And China is clearly making the the argument and, and I think exact, exacting leverage on the fact that, yeah, we are a big market. And if you want to operate here, there are certain things that you can say about our domestic politics and internal conversations. And there are certain things that you can't say. And if you say those things, we are willing to um, exact costs. Uh, so that you realize that, you know, this is something that we don't want to encourage in our politics. So I think it it really is a very interesting conversation with respect to those broader conversations. I think the other aspect of that, and I think you you had some data from Chicago Council and some of the other um, sort of polling data that we had that we wanted to talk about that is related to this broader conversation about, we've had this elite conversation about U.S.-China relations and U.S.-China competition, but how do we tie that into what local people and everyday folks are thinking about US China relations and I think we're beginning to see some of that polling data but that's a bigger question that we need to navigate right so as we're seeing the elites and and the US president talk about US China relations is the elite conversation kind of leading or factoring into the public conversation or is the public conversation totally removed from where elites are
0: yeah so Uh, Thanks for bringing up that Chicago Council data, because I think that's actually really interesting to talk about. So this data was obviously all collected before any of this uh, NBA um, blizzard controversy really began. Um, And there's also been other examples recently with the NBA. Uh, There were apparently protesters. So after the NBA thing happened at a few games, um, protesters carried in signs saying, um, you know, Google the Uyghurs, and NBA officials actually had those signs removed from them, um, and that also caused a tiff. And this was, again, games happening on American soil. These were ordinary American fans. Um, I've never been to a basketball game in the United States, but my understanding is that one is free to cheer About anything, really. You can you can say you know you can you can protest the leaguers, you can protest the other Mm -hmm. team, you can say whatever you want. But apparently, again, this was an example of you know speech being censored there. But again, uh, so the uh, the Chicago Council data is quite interesting uh, because the the point that at least you walk away with, which is that exactly what you said, Prashant, uh, we have this, I guess, shifting elite consensus. I guess Uh, I don't want to say there is a consensus, but broadly shifting consensus towards containment uh, towards um, viewing China as more of a threat to US interests than five years ago, Mm -hmm. Um, as I think you can probably see with this uh, new bipartisan letter, uh, that's probably as bipartisan as anything I've seen from Congress recently. Um, So the Chicago Council found that, you know, two thirds of Americans, uh, 68% in their polling, uh, agreed with the statement that the US should take under um, should undertake friendly cooperation and engagement with China while just 3 in 10, 31% roughly, said that the U.S. should actively work to limit the growth of China's power. Um, You know, there's some concerns there about the way the question's framed, um, but otherwise, broadly speaking, there is a pro-engagement tilt in the public. And what's very interesting about that is that it holds across partisan identification, Republican, Democrat, and independent. It varies among the parties, Uh, far more, um, so 74% of Democrats favor taking friendly cooperation with China, whereas just 58% of Republicans, but still a majority in both cases. Uh, For independents, it was around 69%. Um, And for actively working to limit China's power, um, you know, it's uh, 31% of Demo- um sorry, 31% overall, but uh, 25% of Democrats agreed with that, 29% of independents, and 40% of Republicans agreed about, um, you know, restraining China. And what's interesting is, um, you know, to, to what extent will these controversies begin to pile up and and shift American perceptions about China? Uh, and this is this is really the question: Is are we at a turning point, or is this NBA controversy are, being overread and is it going to be forgotten like some of the other examples that I read out, uh, which you know created news stories when they happened but didn't really. Shift the needle, um, and I think this is an important conversation, especially when we're having a broader discussion about things like economic decoupling um, and mm-hmm. rising economic nationalism, especially in China, where since the beginning of the trade war, uh, Chinese consumers are boycotting American products. Right? Uh, if you're if you're buying a smartphone in China, you might want to buy a Huawei phone, even though it doesn't have access to Google apps anymore, instead of an Android phone um, from an American manufacturer or an iPhone. Um, in the United States, uh, you know, I think we might start to see people making consumption decisions in a different way. Uh, especially after the Blizzard thing, it's been remarkable to see, you know, people kind of... Uh, Blizzard creates the very popular game World of Warcraft, uh, unrelated to the Hong Kong controversy. But a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the boycott Blizzard uh, hashtag has been trending. And people have been sort of tweeting screenshots of themselves, deleting their World of Warcraft accounts, which I'm sure is very difficult for many people. Um, so... Is this is this something that's going to continue to spiral? Um, and you know, I think I think uh, my view is that we're we're starting to see public views, or at least you know, the the American public understand the nature of what it means to live in a world with a powerful, large, authoritarian China that's able to project its preferences on the on the global stage. Uh, you know, it's able to tell. Uh, private American citizens what they can and cannot say on their Twitter feeds and in their, and their time, despite what their day jobs might be. And if there's something Americans don't like, I think it's being told what to say, um, mm-hmm. and especially by a, a government like China. So this could end up backfiring, um, especially if we already have policy interests on the Hill uh Certainly within this White House, but even on the Democratic side, uh, all the Democratic presidential candidates are in a very different place than where the Democratic Party was five years ago on China. Um, if the public catches up with where elite sentiment on China is, then I think that sort of bodes very poorly uh, for the broader trajectory of U.S.-China relations, making things like economic decoupling a lot likelier.
1: No, absolutely, and I I think you know you you hit on another point that's kind of crucial to understand, which is you know the domestic uh, environments in both countries. So you know you have the United States where, you know, it is the season where um, you'll have people from various you know across the political spectrum who want to take a harder position on China because we're nearing a U.S. presidential election. So you you will have um, this this sort of China issue brought up in in a more sort of domestic political context in the United States. But it it is also interesting, you know, as you noted, I mean, China does have an incentive to sort of send a message to, um, you know, corporations and and organizations like the NBA that you shouldn't intervene in in domestic political issues as the Chinese see it. But at the same time, I mean, they also, you know, in China, I mean, one of the interesting things has been, you know, what their response has been relative to uh, the sort of backfiring uh, issue and concern that some folks have pointed out about So. China initially began with sort of a, a quite a, a hard line in terms of, you know, some of the NBA events, you know, being cancelled. You had sort of um, you know, various social media accounts in, in China sort of engaging in this nationalist rhetoric. But I think there is a sense, I think in, in China at least, that uh, if they reach too far, um, they're over-politicizing what is a, you know, a, a generally a sports conversation. I mean, uh, I don't think it's any different in China than it is in the United States that there is a certain, um, you know, amount or, or sort of uh, a, a sort of segment of fans that really just want to watch basketball. Um, and if you over-politicize that event either in the United States or in China, um, you kind of alienate that segment of the population. And, you know, the, the NBA has its own uh, sort of reasons for managing concerns on that. But China also has its own reasons for doing that, right? So, you look at the Olympics and how that has mattered for China as opposed to sort of national pride. I mean, China is looking at a scenario where we have the 2022 Olymp- Winter Olympic Games being held in China. So, they also want to navigate this, um, you know, carefully because you know sports is also a market for China equally as sports is a market for the United States. So it really is an interesting conversation for both countries as they seek to navigate those those extremes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Communist Party also um, doesn't realize how difficult managing the flames of nationalism can be. Really, right? It's not really a a, you know, it's a blunt tool of policy. It's not something that you're particularly going to be able to use to exact very specific outcomes uh, because, you know, it can it, 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 it can catch on and spread like wildfire. And I think, uh, you know, they need to be careful about that because exactly as you said, um, I think I think China has incentives for this stuff to not necessarily spiral out of control uh in a in a in a big way when they have sort of bigger fish to um a bigger fish to fry on the policy agenda, right mm-hmm. so it'll be it'll be interesting to see I mean what the sum total uh effect is. um you know there are people who are entirely skeptical um and basically point to the fact that nothing will change in terms of China's ability to exact costs on American companies until those very same companies see you know the benefits of Chinese market access as outweighing um all other things right so the only way in which american consumers might be able to hold these companies accountable is you know by uh, by threatening revenue in in the united states and elsewhere um and and basically making the point that it will serve these companies better to you know adhere to the democratic and rule of law based values that we tend to value here in the united states and elsewhere um and and preserve market access um here uh versus you know doing anything and everything possible to uh to placate uh the chinese market.
1: Mhm.
0: Yeah, makes sense. But anyways, um yeah, so that was I think um I think an interesting conversation. Uh, I mean this whole thing I think is really fascinating about um how how these uh american companies are are reacting to uh chinese coercion and compelence on speech um but before we close out the podcast um let's i guess go back to a little bit more of a standard agenda item and talk about a summit um so this mm-hmm. is so we're recording this on friday october 11th and actually as we record this um indian prime minister narendra modi has just received chinese president xi jinping in south india where they're going to have a second informal summit um i'm a, I'm a little confused by the whole idea of an informal summit everything from you know <laughs> obama and Sunnylands lands and the shirt sleeves to uh to this uh, Wuhan process. Uh, So that began last April when Modi met Xi in China. And this was after the whole Doklam um, episode in 2017 and the two sides tried to, you know, conduct a reset, broadly speaking, um, convey in a very frank manner to the other leader uh, what their interests were and how India-China relations might move forward. Um. So, yeah, Prashant, we're going to be talking about the summit right as it's happening. But, you know, if we're going by the Wuhan precedent, I think we're going to get readouts that are fairly vague. But I thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of take stock of the India-China relationship. Um, I think things are in an, in- in an interesting place, particularly after um, the August 5th abrogation of Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which changed the internal status of Jammu and Kashmir and bifurcated the state, which China expressed concern about because China has claims in Kashmir, uh, particularly in uh, eastern Kashmir, where the Aksai Chin region is. Um, So that's one issue. But then broadly speaking, there's a much larger issue on... um, economic cooperation between the two sides, uh, particularly, I think, uh, on issues like 5G, which is uh, especially thorny, um, and the the future of a company like Huawei in India. I think those issues are going to come up at this Modi-Shi meeting. On the border issue, uh, you know, I mentioned the Doklam dispute. Um, That's something that I think the two leaders are going to talk about, whether they'll make progress. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical since, again, this is an informal summit. I don't think the expectation is that they're going to walk away with major deliverables. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, what are your uh, expectations uh, for what Modi and she might be talking about today?
1: No, I, I think you hit on the the key points. I think in terms of significance, um, two things. One is the timing, um, because as you noted, we do have this sort of Kashmir decision and the fallout being played out um, between you know China, India, and also Pakistan. We we saw that um, at the UN General Assembly. Uh, we saw that with uh, Modi's visit uh, to the United States. Uh, and we've seen that with respect to China and Pakistan and how they've been responding to things as well. So the timing is one aspect of it. I think the other thing is sort of the context that we're seeing as as the meeting has taken place. I mean, we, we, we've we seen, you know, sort of scattered uh, protests with respect to Tibet that I think underscores um, the fact that, you know, these, these two countries, despite the fact that um, the, the leadership's on both sides and the countries want to, uh, have these summits to say, we're kind of managing these issues. These are really difficult issues to manage, and they're not going to be things that, you know, can actually um, be resolved anytime soon. So it's just a process of really longer term management that that they have to work out. I think one other thing that, that's been really interesting is that, you know, th- this whole issue of uh, Kashmir from the Indian point of view, that the Indians are keen to say, you know, this is something that we have to manage with Pakistan. We're not sure why China's internationalizing it. Um, I think the other interesting aspect is that we have Xi Jinping, you know, after this meeting with Modi, I mean, he's headed to uh, Nepal over the weekend, which, you know, just sort of kind of spotlights another component of this China-India uh, competition uh, with respect to the region, right? So the fact that, you know, China is playing out in, in South Asia and India is also playing out not just in the Indian Ocean, but also in areas like, you know, Southeast Asia and so on and so forth. Uh, we are going to see these two big powers play in each other's uh, sort of, you know, playgrounds or, or near abroads, whatever you want to say, or, or sort of call it. Yeah. Um, that is, I think, the other aspect of the conversation that, that seems striking. And I sense that, you know, the summit meeting, you know, no matter what they say in the official statements, as you correctly pointed out, it really is this broader conversation that we're talking about um, that really matters yeah i mean there's a certain i guess
0: maturity to the geopolitical competition between the two countries at this point uh you know india just participated at the foreign minister's level in a quad meeting and now mm-hmm. you know xi jinping is meeting modi and then going to nepal and nepal Since, you know, September 2015, they promulgated their new constitution, and since then, they've pretty much been drifting away from India and uh, towards Mm -hmm. China, broadly speaking. Uh, So in a way, I mean, uh, the the competition is more intense than it used to be, um, but that might be a good thing in terms of uh, making clear preferences on both sides, right? I think the Indians are speaking up more than they used to on on many of these issues um, in the uh, Indo-Pacific context, especially given that the United States has also changed its China policy there. So that's mm-hmm. been interesting. And also, you know, India's um, broader relationship with uh, Japan and Australia in the meantime has also changed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious to see if, um, if Modi or she will really, uh, you know, cause a splash at this meeting. Again, I'm pretty skeptical going by the Wuhan president. I mean, what Wuhan really did was, I think, created a perception, uh, perhaps a misleading perception that India-China relations were back on an even keel after the tense days of 2017 uh, with the Doklam uh, dispute. And uh, I'm curious if that's going to happen after after this meeting. Um, it might, but broadly speaking, I think there's a lot of kind of unfinished business. But for India, I mean, one of the one of the things right now is you know we have a lot of indicators uh, that the Indian economy is getting quite sluggish, and mm-hmm. I think this is actually a major challenge for the foreign policy of Modi 2.0, which is Modi 1.0 between 2014 and May 2019. Had broadly speaking, the benefit of a strong economy, uh, low oil prices globally. Um, and that makes doing, you know, if you're an Indian prime minister, that makes a lot of things easier. It makes domestic policy easier, makes foreign policy easier. And we saw Modi take risks, right? We saw things like a demonetization, um, a a stronger Pakistan policy, arguably also as a result of feeling economically emboldened at home. And obviously after this major electoral mandate, uh, the government seems to be tripling down on sort of nationalist agenda items, including the Kashmir stuff, and giving less attention to the economy. Uh, But if the economy does go sideways, I think India's options with regard to China become a lot more limited. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think, a, a particularly important point to be made, is that India's room for maneuver with China might be Sort of arrested by its economic options, um, because at the end of the day, the the primary grand strategic objective that every Indian leader has, including Narendra Modi, I think, despite you know his nationalist preferences, is to keep the Indian economy strong and and humming. And mm-hmm. if that if that changes, I think um, that's going to be a major problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess before we close, one one other point that you brought up earlier that I think would be be useful to sort of explore. I mean, is you know what do you think is the role of this employment of this informal summit mechanism as a way for china and india to sort of you know the the, the sort of uh, bureaucratic um, idea is that you you know in these informal mechanisms you have leaders be able to talk more honestly about issues uh, rather than just sort of the standard uh, statements in a more formal setting and hopefully they develop a relationship my own sense is that that hasn't really changed, as you mentioned. You know the sort of uh, nature of the issues that both sides have to address. But I'm just curious. I mean, it, this this sort of employment of an informal summit mechanism is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, sort of trajectory for the relationship in general.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's an attempt to it's an attempt, I think, by both sides to see if this new format can lead to new outcomes or new processes. Because India and China have a very developed set of formalized and institutionalized diplomatic interactions right like the special representatives process on the border um that has really led nowhere uh, on many of these important mm-hmm. issues and both Modi and Xi are powerful leaders domestically um I think they both see themselves as having sort of a force of will when it comes to foreign affairs so putting them two in a room um and having them interact on a personal level again I mean I, I think the readouts after these meetings tell us a very little part of you mm-hmm. know w- what is actually being discussed um, just by the nature of these very meetings. So perhaps it is, re- it is leading to an important source of understanding between the two leaders on a personal level that might lead to some outcomes that might not be possible otherwise. Um, but also, I mean, like I said, I think the perception uh, issue is important. Both India and China, I think, have incentives to minimize the perception that their relationship is more... Um, is more full of friction than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having this meeting, you know, they, they can, you know, sit down together and uh, have some nice photographs taken of them chatting casually. It, it, it sends a a warmer message about the state of India-China relations than the reality might actually suggest. So I think that's also valuable for the two countries. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, Prashant, uh, I guess, uh, bon voyage for the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, I'll look forward to yeah. having you back on um, when you get back from Asia. Sounds good. Great. Uh, For listeners, um, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes of the Asia Geopolitics podcast. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, don't forget to leave us a review. You can do that on either iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers where you'll find our podcast. And before we close, just a note from our sponsor. So this episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of the Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. All right, that's all for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back next week with more.